At the Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. At our Art and Architecture keynote, acclaimed architect and recipient of the American Institute of Architects 2015 Gold Medal, Moshe Safdi, gives a talk followed by a discussion with architecture critic Sarah Goldhagen. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Graham Gund, and it's a pleasure to introduce Moshe Safdi. I first met Moshe almost 50 years ago when I visited his Montreal office uh, for a project I was working on as an architectural student. Uh, in his 20s, he had already become famous due to the riotous popularity of Habitat 67 in Montreal. Afterward, Moshe settled here in Boston, across the street from us, dividing his time between teaching at Harvard and his own practice. Commissions like the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts and the National Gallery of Canada soon followed. Now Moshe's buildings grace not only the American heartland, but also the ancient quarters of Jerusalem and the booming urban centers of China. A few years ago, the late New York Times critic, Herbert Mouchamp, wrote an article about Moshe and the title was Architecture of Light and Remembrance. I thought that was a very special way of expressing the essence of Moshe's work. It is light-filled and evokes the mysteries of the site on which it is built. It is an architecture of the power of human memory. Architects sometimes take visual clues from other architects, but Moshe is a form giver beholden only to his own imagination. Today in conversation with Sarah Goldhagen, Moshe will talk about dense urbanisms and the desire to humanize the mega scale. Sarah was for six years the architectural critic of the New Republic and 10 years prior to that, a professor of architectural history at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. She's the author of such acclaimed books as Louis Kahn's Situated Modernism and Anxious Modernisms, The Experimentation in Postwar Architectural Culture. Uh, and she has a book that's coming out, a new book coming out soon. Sarah is one of the most erudite and insightful cultural critics practicing today. Please welcome Sarah and Moshe. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Sarah, for being here with us. Um, and uh, I guess good afternoon. Um, I want to focus today on a very particular issue and a very um, particular aspect of my work as an architect. Uh, I believe that we are witnessing in our lifetime, maybe I should say in your lifetime, a, a radical urban transformation. Um, it's happening under our nose. We are uh, aware of it, yet feel that we have no control over it, and that is the uh, urbanization at a massive scale in the entire world into mega cities of tens and 20 million people, the dominant building type being the high-rise tower, and densities which are completely without precedence. And I think that this uh, transformation is rapidly eroding the quality of life that we, take, we took for granted in the traditional city that we are more familiar with. And living in Boston, we are still familiar with. Uh, I was thinking in the uh, previous session, first of all, that architecture is not gonna be as entertaining as Abraham's trial, but also that uh, ecclesiastic, ecclesiastics had a point that there's nothing new under the sun, because uh, while I'll be talking about the high-rise building, there was the Tower of Babel. Uh, we're not told in the Bible who the architect was, but we know what happened to the builders. I think that the 
a high-rise building presents us today with issues of impact on the city and impact on the way most people in the world are living and working. And so, actually, I'll take you on a journey which begins in China, uh, where I'm now very much at work, but a trip that I made to China in 1973 during the Cultural Revolution. And I want to make the point, this is Beijing in 1973, that there were no high-rise buildings whatsoever in Beijing, nor in Shanghai, not a single high-rise tower. There were very few automobiles. This is Beijing today, a transformation during our lifetime. Hundreds and thousands of high-rise tower, it's extraordinarily high density, wiping out the historic fabric. This is Hong Kong, if you're rich. If you're poor, that's Hong Kong. And with it comes extraordinary congestion. The densities that we are developing sitting with, uh, cities with are unable to sustain the transportation that it generates, neither at the vehicular level nor you can see even in the pedestrian and bicycle level. And I want to go back in history to the emerging of the high-rise building in the 20th century and the modernist concepts of towers in the park uh, which dominated so much of our thinking of the emerging early urbanism. And I think this cartoon tells us the story where we have wiped out the 19th century urban fabric with its streets and its piazzas and its public spaces and replaced it with these anonymous buildings which do not coalesce to make an urban place. So I would say 100 years after the emergence of the high-rise, we still have not understood how to make it an urban building block where the sum total is greater than the parts. And the interpretation of this in the early 30s and 40s and 50s was Stuyvesant Town and scores of projects across the world. I visited this particular public housing project as a student studying housing in North America, uh, I would say over 50 years ago. And I came back thinking, we can solve that problem. We need to rethink the apartment building. And uh, Habitat, which was the realization of my uh, university thesis, tried to rethink the apartment as an individual house, a house with a garden. Each house has a garden. There are open streets in the air. Uh, this is uh, a, a village, uh, yet you have your own house. There is individual identity. And uh, while it was extraordinary success 50 years ago when it was completed, it certainly did not proliferate. And so a few years ago, we decided in the office to revisit Habitat. What would we do today? And the first thing we had to note is reality has changed. The densities we thought were high densities 50 years ago are now low densities. The densities of cities today are 10 times, 15 times what we imagined at that time. And so as a series of theoretical studies, we took Midtown Manhattan and we mapped it uh, to the exact density in terms of office towers, residential towers, uh, retail. And we said, how can we reconfigure this in a way that gives more open space, more gardens, public gardens, parks, more private residential gardens, how to make more sense of the way we cluster towers in the city? And the first uh, iteration, one of the iterations of this study, uh, was a complex in which the lower 25 floors were office buildings, uh, above them were residential clusters, they were connected at the 25th level by community street. Uh, at the lower levels, there were pedestrian streets with shops and so on. And uh, there was this fractalization of the structure to provide a lot of open space, both for the community and for the individuals. And also the building was permeable. If you built it along Central Park or the East River or uh, or for that matter, uh, the, Charles, uh, the Charles, you would not create a wall because a building can breathe, it has these large openings within it. And in the last few years, lo and behold, these theoretical studies have now been translated into real projects in which people are moving in 
uh, I'll show you a couple of those to emphasize the fact, A, that intervention uh, by the design profession in rethinking the high-rise building, both, I'll talk about both the residential and the workspace and any, any of these buildings, is possible. In this particular case in Singapore, this is middle-income housing. The building has just been completed. It forms a cluster of 600 apartments. It is rich in community spaces. These bridges are playgrounds, swimming pools. There are terraces and gardens for the individual apartments. You see here these bridges which are transformed into parks and playgrounds and so on. And this we are managing, succeeding at this point to provide for middle-income housing. In China, Qingwandao, a beach city, we have a similar development of middle-income housing. Uh, the structure along the beach does not form a wall from the city behind it. Uh, they are again terraces and gardens and public spaces. These are densities comparable to the highest densities, again in Colombo, Sri Lanka, another uh, tower which kinds to become attempts to rethink the tower, the residential tower. But I want to come, uh, move on to what I believe is the issue of the moment. Uh, and the issue of the moment is the deterioration as a result of the kind of new development of mixed-use clustering of towers with podiums which have malls in them as a dominant typology of urban development in Asia, in South America. Uh, we have an example in Boston, Copley Place, not far from where we are, where a group of towers and a residential building are uh, clustered together as a self-contained introvert project. This is one of hundreds such projects in Shanghai. It has two office towers, one residential tower. It's got probably a million square feet of shopping. It's exclusively commercial. It turns its back to the city. Once you get in, you rarely find how to get out of it. And I believe that rethinking what these mixed-use projects are in a way that becomes part of the city, that contributes, contributes to the public realm, is the order of the day. And I will show you three projects in which we've tried to deal with this more complex issue. The first is a Marina Bay Sands complex in Singapore, which is 8 million square feet uh, in the downtown of Singapore, facing the uh, bay that has been formed by landfill, uh, it has hotels, convention centers, shopping, theaters, museums, and a casino. And I was asked when I was commissioned, why do you want to do a casino? And I said, because I think this project uh, is not about a casino. It, it's an opportunity to explore a new kind of public realm. And the, the initiation of the concept of how this connects to the city comes from the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore, which I would say is probably one of the most forward-thinking, proactive planning uh, entity in the world today. It's sort of what the BRA used to be many years ago. It actually intervenes in development. And it came up with the concept that all projects along the waterfront would link together through one main public realm promenade. And we built on this idea where, as you see, the line along the water is that promenade. And we said our own internal spine, the shopping and the theaters and the, and the museums, would integrate with that promenade so that you will have a place in the city which is indoor and outdoor, air-conditioned yet connected with nature, full of open spaces, and yet responds to all the contemporary needs of climate control, and so on and so forth. And that, the, the key is in the cross-section, where the retail, multi-levels, parking, subway, mass transit, all connect into an indoor-outdoor uh, relationship. The promenade itself along the water, uh, with the museums and, and shopping pavilions, uh, the familiar Louis Vuitton, doesn't matter where you are in the world, and doesn't matter which mall you go into, it's Louis Vuitton. 
probably 10 in every city, if not more. And then the air-conditioned space full of light connecting to the outdoors so that there's an in-out flow uh, uh, through the day. And in a complex such as this, creating many public parks and spaces at different levels. Here we had the opportunity to develop a sky park. It crowns the building. It's two and a half acres of parks and uh, swimming pools and public observatory, uh, the longest pool in the world, uh, all invited uh, to experience it. And it's a new kind of public place, which on the 59th floor overlooks the city and shows what kind of spaces can be created when you consider the city three-dimensionally rather than a series of independent extruded towers. Currently under construction in uh, Chongqing, China, is even a larger complex of 10 million square feet of mixed-use residential, offices, shopping, in other words, one of those major sectors of the city. And it's, it will be built at the place where the city was born, where the Yangtze River and the Jialing River meet. It's called the Emperor's Landing. It's where the city was founded. It's where the old wall of the city used to be. You see here an old model showing the grand stairs that came down to the shipping area where all the sailboats coming up and down the Yangtze uh, would, uh, would uh, harbor. And trying to give more deeper meaning to what translated into eight towers and a lot of public spaces, uh, we tried uh, to relate it to the sort of city's history, its shipping tradition, and out of this came the notion that these cluster of buildings could form, so to speak, together a kind of a moving dynamic sail ship that's coming down the river, which is kind of the prow of the city. But more relevantly, the question was, how do you take 10 million square feet and make it part of the city around it so that it enriches the city around it and vice versa, where streets flow through rather than get disconnected in an internal place. The arrows on the left show you how the city streets flow through the project as become pedestrian places. And the section on the right indicates that while the public move through these streets down towards the piazza, which exists at the prow of the city, the roof of this podium becomes completely one large public park. It connects to the city streets as the public ascends. And here again, the opportunity that all the space created by this building becomes dedicated to public park, open space, and greenery. The mixed use you see here shows you the combination of offices and residential. When you mix build it uses within a complex, it allows you to put each particular function in its optimal location. The city streets going through as they get roofed and weather protected emerging on the other side and the park, uh, public park on top, which is accessible to the city as a whole. Rather than have a sky park here, we have a conservatory because, of, uh, because the climate in Chongqing is extremely difficult, 40 degrees centigrade, 100 over 100 at summer, and, and, and cool, cold winter. So a conservatory, again, provides multiple public spaces uh, and entertainment and so on and so forth. The last project I will show is rethinking an airport in terms of its public realm. And in the center of the Singapore airport, between all the existing terminals, we are building a new kind of center, which will combine the shopping you get in airports, some airport facilities, with an enormously, I mean, one of the largest gardens under glass. Uh, this is an attempt uh, by the Changi Airport to say we will make a place that serves both the residents of the city, the passengers, those who work at the airport, but the 
the centerpiece of this would be a great open green space, which is just a place for contemplation, for entertainment, uh, and within that, of course, there would be the usual commercial shopping places, etc. And so what we try to show is that you can have the richness of the marketplace, of the bazaar, uh, of the commercial mall, together with the tranquility and, uh, and just contact with nature of a great garden. And so this entire structure is also bringing light right through the different levels into the areas where there's shopping and commercial activity. The entire roof drains towards the center so that at the lower levels you have these bazaar-like streets lined with shops and so on, but the entire roof becomes then this great park which you see here as you enter from the passenger terminals, the trains that connect the terminals going through the space and looking down on it uh, with a lot of uh, um, attractions designed by the Exploratorium in San Francisco for young people. Uh, there's a tradition in Singapore where young people uh, go and do homework at the airport. Uh, hundreds of kids uh, you come down by the subway uh, to do their homework. I kind of wondered where did this tradition come from? Of course, it comes from the years where there was no air conditioning in the houses and the airport was the one place you could go and do your homework with air conditioning. Well, this garden will become now a place where thousands of kids can come and maybe do their homework. Um, so, how will I conclude what I have to say? I would say that uh, we must begin thinking of high-rise buildings not as individual objects. We must resist the temptation to look at them as great opportunities for sculpture, but to realize that each, of, each tower has extraordinary sphere of influence and impact on what's around it, and that we must design them as, a, as an urban scheme in which the relationship between towers is complementary and we must realize now that we have to rethink the public realm beyond the streets we're familiar with and the, and the squares which we have outside this building, which is really the remnants of 19th century urbanism. We need to find a new, for, new way to accommodate 20th century urbanism in these mega cities in which community life in a truly public way, which is not purely commercial, is generated through the very careful combination of streets and parks and gardens at various levels of the city into something which starts dealing with this scale in a more humane way. So we'll... Thank you, Moshe. I just want to say that the um, swimming pool in Marina Bay Sands is one of the coolest places to go swimming on Earth, and I swim a lot, so I highly recommend that all of you go there. Um, I thought we would start, Moshe, if I could give the, uh, bring this a little bit closer to home, because some people, at least in the audience, would think, okay, this is Asia, it's halfway across the world, and so on and so forth. This problem of mega scale and, mega de and very high density urban living is a problem that everybody is going to be facing in the next 25 or 30 years. And so I just looked up a few statistics about the United States um, to bring it a little closer to home. And the population in the United States is projected to increase by 25% between now and 2050. 25% uh, is 80 million people. So we're going to have to find a place to put 80 million extra people between now and 2050. And as you know, buildings take time. Um, to make this a little bit more concrete, think about it this way. If you took all the urban buildings, infrastructure, and parks across the United States today and divided it into thirds, we're going to have to add a third again what we have of what we have on top of what we have. Okay, or another way to put this, if we were just to increase the density of New York City by 33%, just New York City, that would take care of only 6 million people. 
and we have to take care of 80 million people. Um, we're going to be building about a billion square feet of residential space in the next 25 years. So how do we do it? Current urban theory supports the kind of work that Moshe and others are trying so hard to figure out, which is that you don't, suburban sprawl has got us into lots and lots of problems, including climate change, the most, the most frightening of all of them. High density urban developments are the best. Um, they're the best because it cuts down on commuting time. They're best because uh, it's functional to have things in one place, um, so on and so forth, as well as being much better for the environment. So these kinds of mega-scale buildings are buildings that we have to figure out how to do right. Now, the problem is this, that our cities everywhere, the United States, in Asia, and so on, are going to change dramatically in the next 25 years. But our needs as people are not. So you could put it another way, our habitats, our, our human habitats are going to change dramatically because they're going to be high density, large scale, urban, dense urban environments. But we're still living in human bodies with the scale that human bodies have. We're still, people who need access, continuous access to nature. There is abundant psychological and neuroscientific literature at this point. We know that access to nature on a regular basis improves people's well-being, psychological health, cognitive faculties. People who don't have access to nature on a regular basis actually end up scoring lower on problem-solving tests and cognition than people who do. Um, <clears throat> and we're still people who need very deep, dense connections to place and to other people in small communities and families in small local communities and in larger communities. And these very large buildings, it's tough to maintain a connection to nature to maintain a sense of human scale, as Moshe was discussing, and to build a sense of local community that builds into a vibrant public realm. And so that's why Moshe should be celebrated as one of the people who's really taking on this problem and trying to figure it out in the most pragmatic way. Okay, so I have a ton of questions for you. Um, <clears throat> one of one of the first is this. You started with a model at Habitat, um, <clears throat> which is this, for people who haven't been there, this beautifully scaled, sort of small-scale project where these spacious but small apartments open out into terraces, and you have sight lines to lots of other people's apartments, so it does create a sense of community. Um, and then you revisited Habitat, um, what was it now, 10 years ago or something like that, just as a theoretical project, and now here you are building these massive projects. How has your thinking on urbanism evolved? Well, I think we, we went through several phases. In the 60s, we felt everything is possible. Um, there was the you know celebration of the suburbs, but we knew that that's limited and there would be a day of reckoning. And so we were thinking in terms of how do we rethink the urban environment and Habitat was one of many explorations, but one that got built that's there 50 years later and mm -hmm. still lived in and, and enjoyed. So it proved that, the Habitat proved that it's a desirable way of living, that people just love living there, want to be there. It proved that the product sort of responded to the need but it didn't proliferate. And the 70s and 80s were very difficult times. There was a downturn in urban development, uh, at least in terms of the economy. Uh, many of us ended up uh, architects designing mostly cultural buildings. I, in the 80s and 90s, I was doing mostly museums and libraries and, and, and public buildings, but no opportunity to really take on the, you know, several habitats never got built. What's happened in the last 10 years is 
first an awakening even amongst the, the, the private sector, the building community, the builders community, the developers community, that, that there is demand and there is a desire for better quality of life than the standard extruded tower. Uh, that, uh, and that's true not only of, the, of living space, but of workspace. It emerges first in the great cities that have some affluence, like Shanghai and Hong Kong and Singapore and uh, some of the cities of South uh, America. But now it's actually, you see it just spreading. There is a kind of a uh, passion for rethinking urbanism. But at the same time, there are very dangerous new patterns. One pattern is developers assemble a big piece of land in the city. It's now, there are hundreds of them in Shanghai and, and, and many other cities. Mostly they want to do a group of buildings, of towers. Uh, a million square feet of shopping is, is the kind of running path. They're purely commercial spaces. They're totally privatized, controlled. Uh, the, the attitude towards the design, because I deal with those developers, is get people confused, get them lost, and don't let them find a way out. They, they, you know, they don't express it this way. From casino but, to shopping mall. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, that's antithetical to what cities are all about, which is about connectivity, about uh, openness, about access, about the right diversity of population, all these things. So how are we going to bring this about is, mm -hmm. uh, is, is a fascinating question. And I think that we've got to resurrect the respectability of the world planning. And we've got to resurrect the respectability of urban design. You know, we've been to 30 years of the market knows best. And I think the market knows best in urban development has destroyed our cities. Mm -hmm. Now we know that the market doesn't know best. The market and city planning knows only short-term profits. It has no sense of what's best long-term, even economically. And so what's going to bring that about, I think, is much more proactive, uh, authoritative planning entities within cities that can think about things more than just the individual parcel and way beyond zoning in the traditional right. sense. Just to give the audience a little context here, um, urban planning and urban design were two professions that were considered to be very exciting professions with a lot of socially progressive possibilities in the 30s through the 50s and fell out of favor by the 1970s because of projects like the one in East Harlem, close to where I live actually, that Moshe showed, uh, that were very badly done and uh, very insensitively designed, the kind of, and that's how modernism in fact got such a bad name. And so urban Austin, city planning, exactly, city planning, urban design, these were professions that really fell out of favor. You couldn't, if you were an expert in those things, you weren't an expert in anything, according to particularly developers. And so power was transferred over to the private sector. So what would these urban planning entities, I assume that you're thinking of something like what happened in Singapore with your experience in Singapore, what would they control that can, and how, how would these things work? Or what, in your experience, has been successful? It's, it's a complex question, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a number of examples. Uh, the High Line in New York is a great success. Everybody's excited that, I assume many of you know about the High Line. It's a railway line that's been made into a public park, and uh, be, it's actually generated great value for the real estate around it. A ton. So what happens now? Uh, in the absence of planning, uh, dozens, if not more, towers will rise right next to this new public resource. Everybody wants to be closest to it, so they're crowding right into it. And before you know it, the High Line will be a shadow corridor uh, in a new kind of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And it's happening. It is. As we it speak, happening. it's happening. Now, if New York had a planning department that had any teeth, and an initiative, it would create a new kind of urban design guidelines for the High Line. It would say, if that's a High Line, let the profile of buildings mm -hmm. step back from the High Line. So if you want to build a tower, you've got to be at a certain distance. You can step towards it, but you can't build next to it. One simple zoning rule would transform the High Line. 
Well, we don't have that kind of zoning. We don't have that kind of courage. We have too much influence of the private sector on the planning process, and that has to change. And that means, first of all, municipal governments, and eventually also state governments, need to get reinvolved. But, but it's, for that, it needs to be politically respectable. And that's why I say we need to re resurrect and make the idea of planning respectable, because without it, now in Singapore, which some people are critical, you can't chew gum, uh, there is a government with quality civil servants who are committed to trying to make sense of urban development. Mm -hmm. And apart from being innovative in the area of transportation and traffic control and so on, the Urban Renewal Authority actually puts forward guidelines, I'll show you one of them, and it also polices them. Um, by policing, I mean you present design and a group of people, including outside experts who are brought to the discussion, say push this back and that doesn't work and connect this to this side and that side. There is a passion for making it part of the city. And so they I not only they not only create the legislation, but they actually enforce exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> Without enforcing yeah. it, legislation is not that right. effective. Mm -hmm. Now, your answer to this question could go in a couple of ways. When you look at these huge developments, I mean, one thing that anybody wonders is, how could you possibly create a sense of place and locality? Uh, in these massive projects, and even your projects, all in Asia are in very different places. Shanghai is not uh, Colombo, is not, you know, and so on. So how do you deal with that? You mean with the specificity of place? Uh, yes, and locality. I think that's the genesis of my work. Mm -hmm. I, I think that whether it's a high-density complex or whether it's a museum uh, in the city or in the countryside, I begin with the site and with the culture of the place and with how people specifically live there. And uh, it becomes the kind of uh, 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 genesis of, of a concept. So, uh, you know, Singapore is one place. There was the skyline, the city. Uh, the reason it evolved into three towers is because I didn't want to create a wall from the sea beyond it. I wanted mm -hmm. to be like a gateway to the city. So all these localized things, the climate, the architecture of shade in the tropics versus uh, the architect that transforms it winter in, in, in Montreal mm -hmm. uh, and makes uh, public spaces usable all year round. All these uh, specificity, specific issues come into place and it, it therefore evolves an architecture that's rather reading differently depending on where I'm designing. But while there are very regional specific issues, there's universal issues. Yeah. When you take 10 million square feet and you put them on three acres, you got daylight problems and, trans and, and privacy problems and, and scale issues that are the same everywhere. And they require some inventive tools. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem with the profession today is that most high-rise towers are viewed as kind of a, you know, ego trip opportunity for a great object in the skyline that'll be memorable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it's leaning or twisting, then you remember it even better. But what's that got to do with the quality of life in the building? Mm -hmm. Very rarely anything. Mm -hmm. So it means rethink, re, re kind of orienting the thought process of the profession in terms of a responsibility about the impact on life of these very dense complexes. Mm -hmm. um, let's take the issue of scale in, um, more specifically, which is the human body is the scale it is, and one of the things that we know, um, that a famous Dutch, uh, Danish, sorry, urbanist, Jan Gell, says that one of the canonical principles of good urban design is people need new things to look at a lot. And I don't remember the exact figure, but it's something like for every 50 seconds that you walk along a place, you need something new to look at. Um, now, 
that becomes a problem when you're building these massive large-scale buildings because repetition is an inevitable part. Repetition and pattern is an inevitable part of them. So how have you in, let's say, the Chongqing project um, dealt with that on the ground plane and then on the other planes that people are experiencing? I, I, rather than focus on specifically one project, I'd okay, say there's certain, the certain rules. Mm -hmm. Extrusions uh, and, and close packing of of the building mass uh, is antithetical to variety, antithetical to diversity. It doesn't create also the opportunity for indoor, outdoor. So on one side, on one hand, you have the economy of extrusions. Uh, fractalization, which is a mathematical term from fractals, is when you take a volume or surface and you break it into infinite kind of facets. Fractalization does the opposite. So if you take that extruded mass and you give it a very complex outline, you create more outdoor, indoor, more terraces, more mm -hmm. spaces. Basically, we're into the process of fractalizing the big mass into smaller pieces. The smaller the component you break it up into, the more comfortable you feel with it right. as an individual person. We evolved in the savannas, not in a high-rise city. And the next thing is to really think of light in a responsible way. Sunlight, there's a, in, the, in the China project in Qingwanda that I showed, there's a zoning requirement that every apartment needs to receive three hours of sunlight, and that is measured in the winter solstice. Right. And I can promise you that we spent six months with all our computer aid tricks and models figuring out how to mass that building up to get that sun and making units that go through to get the sun to hit every apartment for three hours Wait, in the which, winter storm. Which project was The one on the seacoast. Uh-huh. So here's one simple rule that actually, if you uh, implement, completely transforms the sort of uh, discipline of architecture in terms of what you're solving. You're trying to get light to every apartment, right. which means that many solutions become impossible. They don't meet that criteria. And it's and many, these Sorry, guys. let me interrupt. And many of the iconic solutions of these super memorable, like the Burj Khalifa or others, are among those that, are, that don't work, in fact. Well, they don't even bother. So, no, uh, exactly. Go ahead. But, but it's this kind of thinking that will transform what not just these buildings look like. Or, or the, what they look like is a byproduct of, of you know, what generates the design. The other thing is we, all, we should not think in terms of individual towers that are separate from each other, but actually the potential of linking towers at various levels opens up all kinds of new possibilities. I mean, I think I demonstrated in Singapore, what one sky park can do in terms of public space and just the whole feel of the place. If these were just three towers sitting there, uh, it wouldn't just have anything to do with uh, any resemblance to the quality of life that there is there now. So it's, it's creating open spaces at various levels, it's linking towers, it's rethinking the shape and form of towers, and it's going back to the public realm at street level and realizing that it's going to take a lot of effort to connect these things so they become part of the city again. Mm -hmm. Okay, two questions. Um, fractalization, that's a word I like a lot, but that's because I'm used to architect jargon. <laughs> a, a fra fractal geometry is basically when you take a geometric form and you repeat it at lots of different levels, scales, um, and people like uh, what's called self-same repetition at different scales. So one question I have for you, Moshe, is uh, is the buildability of the kinds of things you're doing. Of course, the reason you get these iconic towers, these you know big here-I-am towers, is because you basically build a concrete core and you put slabs into the concrete core with some small supports around the edge and you put up skin and glass or whatever and you're done. That's it. It's easy. What you're doing is not that easy. Um, and what kinds of issues of construction, buildability, and cost 
because you're working with developers and it's very important to be able to make the arguments that you make convincingly to the developers. Um, what kinds of issues of constructability and cost have you been facing? I think there's two sides to your question. Mm -hmm. The first is conceptual, uh, the second is, is more pragmatic. Conceptually, there's no question that taking a million square feet and extruding it into a simple uh, volume versus opening it up into different volumes is cheaper to do. There's no question, there's no magic to it. It's surface area, it's how much you need to insulate. Uh, so you have to begin by recognizing a value, a value that in doing it differently you get something superior. The next question is, is it affordable? Mm -hmm. Are people prepared and able to pay for it? And to me, that's the greatest challenge, that it's better, we know, that it's more expensive to do, mm -hmm. we know. So now comes the pragmatic uh, response, which is to what extent can we harness the new tools and the old tools, but a lot of new tools of building technology and materials and, the, in, and the, the inventiveness that's possible within process and materials to make these things more easily attainable economically uh, and technology, through technology. And that is a slow process, but it's happening. Could we you are describe, the, uh, give a couple of examples? Well, in Habitat, we began by saying, let's prefabricate it into repetitive boxes, and we put the boxes together, we prefabricate it on the ground, they're all repetitive, they're gonna be cheaper. We were optimistic, it wasn't that cheap, but it, it tried to demonstrate that through industrialization, you could achieve this fractalization. Mm -hmm. I think today we have new materials emerging. We are hoping to get light materials which are fireproof, which would be much lighter, that would allow you to prefabricate and assemble building components, maybe not whole boxes, but in a way that puts the process back in the factory. Anybody who's built amongst you, renovated a house, done a kitchen, built a new house, knows that everything is done twice. Everything is done wrong once, torn away and redone. And I mean, everybody hand, knows that. You it's know? still a hand-built industry, by the way. It is a hand industry yeah. and not a very well-coordinated one. Correct. Well, you just start dealing with that and you cut cost by half. Yeah. So on one hand, the new environment is gonna cost more. It's the same as sustainability. If you want to introduce energy saving processes, often you'll have to put more money down at the beginning and, and, and pay it back through five years, 10 years right. in terms of energy. So I think it's the new processes, 3D printing, new materials, uh, we're just on the threshold of just a, a, an explosion of new materials which are not yet with us in building, but they're coming, mm -hmm. I hope, and they are the ones that are gonna help us to achieve that. So it's both cutting costs at the outset and cutting maintenance costs and, and energy Buildings costs further on. Buildings that perform long term. Right, right, interesting. Okay, um, I think we're gonna open up to some questions. Moshe, if we could make you kind of the ruler of the world, we know it would be a much better place. But what concerns me a little bit is that the models you look to is Singapore, not a democracy. The dystopia you look to is New York, a messy, messy democracy. So in order to achieve the results you want, you also put down a little bit free market, the market doesn't know, and you're completely correct, completely correct. But in order to get to the utopian world that we would all like to get to, do we have to compromise democracy? I think that's a central and important question which I agonize about all the time. And uh, let's recognize, first of all, that there are cycles of the interpretation in terms of the word democracy and the planning process. In the 30s and 40s, in New York, the one we talk about, this, this dystopia, was uh, a powerful planning agency headed by Moses, who was ridiculed and attacked, and what did he give us? He gave us the beaches, 
as his intervention at least, his policies. The beaches and the parkways and uh, the bridges and the list is long. In that same New York, the city fathers decided a hundred and something years ago to go outside the city limit and buy a piece of land far from the city to be Central Park. You know, that's visionary thinking of public servants. And today in New York, as a result of that intervention, we got Central Park. So I don't think there is really such a deep contradiction between democracy and our democratic elected officials exercising their judgment about these kinds of intervention. Central Park as an intervention, and by the way, if you go into the archive, both for Mount Royal Park and Central Park, both were done by Olmsted, into the archives and see the fights and discussions about waste of public money to buy this piece of land which is in the cow pasture that nobody's ever going to go to. So I think we should take that as an example and think what is today the equivalent of creating a Central Park? What is today the equivalent of creating meaningful public places for the citizens of a city? How do we get the private sector, when it builds, to pay its tax towards the public realm, its obligation to the public realm? The private sector is selfish and it's short-sighted by definition. So therefore, legislation, which can be democratic, fully democratic, can say to them, you've got to act responsibly. These are the rules. Just like we do today say you've got to insulate your building. That's the rules. You can't waste energy. Is that infringing on democracy? Well, the equivalent of insulating a building exists across the board in the spatial planning of a city. There's another answer as well, which is that there's democracy and then there's capitalism. And if you want to see a different <laughs> Good. relationship Good between point. democracy and capitalism, look at Western Europe. Those are all democracies and they have much more vigorous and much more entrenched, uh, in a good way, um, planning, planning at the local and at the state level and their urban fabrics are much, much better than those, than those in New York and the United States. Next question. This actually is a bit of a follow-up on that. Um, uh, one of the huge issues that people have to deal with when they want to build something, particularly something as visionary as what you've charted out, is the cost and the, the, the financial structure. You know, if you're going for private money, you've got to deal with what the capital markets are willing to fund, and they don't like to take unnecessary risk and so forth. So there's a bit of a challenge there in there. We're in a cycle right now, unlike the time when Robert Moses and others were active, where we don't have public funding. Um, I'm curious about your, the only one I can think of where there's been some um, public funding, subway station, things like that, are, is Hudson Yards in New York, which is of scale. But other than that, it's hard to find anything where the capital markets can respond at the kind of scale that you're talking about. Could you comment on what you think of Hudson Yards and how you think we could bridge the financial issues that stand in the way uh, in our current setup? Actually, I think your question is, is, is more fundamental than Hudson Yards, and it's a deeply political question. What has happened in the United States? And I'm familiar with the Canadian structure. I'm familiar with the structure in, in, many, in many places. What's happened in the United States is that we have starved taxation. We have, through the fanaticism of low taxes, deprived, first of all, the infrastructure and urban sector to the point where the country physical plant is totally distorted. The richest country in the world has the most ridiculous infrastructure in the world. The trains, the roads, the landscaping, the parks, in almost every country, Canada, Europe, Singapore, is infinitely better quality of what we have in the United States because we've starved through uh, lowering the taxes beyond reason. I think we need the courage to recognize that the, at the municipal and state level, there has to be the taxation that enables the maintenance and creation of decent infrastructure, because without it, we have nothing. And in fact, it is good business. It's good capitalism. And uh, I hope that we would wake up to it, because at this point, 
this continuation of reducing taxes and first of all taking it away from that kind of programs and then even though when we do an, a, 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 a program as we had in the last few years of stimulus, how much of that have we seen actually of the stimulus? Did we get the fast train from Washington to Boston? <laughs> Did we get a train system in the country? Sure. The, the airports in this, in this country are, are a disgrace. I mean, these, they, you, you go into an airport and it's a disgrace to the public realm. An airport is public realm. And so I think we've just got to go to the roots of it, which is a taxation system. Thank you. These are some really wonderful ideas, and I love particularly your conversation about taxes and the role of municipal municipalities in um, regulating housing. One of the huge risks, obviously, in new urbanism, is, as has many great things come with this, is the very real problem of displacement, gentrification, and economic stratification. And I'm wondering if you saw in your examples of any of the projects you worked on or envisioned good examples of how private development was also used to create low-cost affordable housing and to maintain economic diversity in the urban course. I'm doing a project in New York just now, which is a 60-story tower, mostly residential. And as part of the new requirements, they will be providing, I'm not sure exactly how many units of, of affordable housing. So New York, for example, today uh, under, the, under the mayor is, is insisting on the provision uh, of, over of affordable 20%, housing. It's 20%. 30%, However, we got deep problems here because as cities get denser and more concentrated, the affluent want to be there. Now, that's a big reversal from the 60s and 70s, where the affluent wanted to be in the suburbs. And, as, and not only do the affluent uh, in New York, of New York, want to be there, the affluent of uh, Jeddah and the affluent of Athens, they all want to be in New York, too. So this, this and, and also in London, and also in Rome, and, and so on and so forth. So this concentration of wealth, while it's good for the tax base maybe, and it helps the cities financially, is terrible for affordable housing. And I think how you balance that out, given the, the, uh, our capitalist system and the openness that anybody can purchase a unit and there's no restrictions and you don't have to be a citizen or a resident, is a, is a deep problem that needs addressing. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it, is, it needs addressing because the same problem is occurring in young people in Tel Aviv can't afford to live in Tel Aviv, young people in Jerusalem can't afford to live there, and now it's happening in Toronto, and they all get pushed to the perimeter, and it's not only a problem of their welfare, it's a problem of the health of a city because the city is not very healthy when it doesn't get the diversity of population within its exactly. uh, core. Thank you. Okay, last question, please. Um, my question is about the public realm aspect of your project, which is one, I'm wondering what's, in what sense they're part of the public realm, whether they, they're privatized public spaces in your projects or whether they're actual private spaces, privatized like the lawn on D in South Boston, and whether the, in either case, I know you talk about openness a lot, but whether the sense of enclosure in, for the public spaces in your projects is hazardous to the idea in general of public spaces. And even though it's frustrating, I would say also the public vetting process and the municipal, municipal process for planning these sorts of projects, shouldn't that be considered part of the idea of a public realm related to a project, not just the physical public yeah. spaces? I, I think it's an excellent question, and it, it points to a paradox. The paradox is that in the past, the public realm was mostly on public land, streets, although not universally so. If you take a city like Milan, the streets were public, the piazzas were public, but the famous Galleria Victorio Emanuel connects to public spaces and was privately owned. However, it had no doors. The buildings around it were architecturally designed as exterior. Every detail in the architecture uh, uh, broadcasted, I'm a public place. There were no barriers, no controls of any kind. So we know that you can design privately owned spaces that feel and are accessible like public space. Coming 
from to today. I don't think it's re realistic to assume that the, the public realm of today will only be in, on public land. Uh, first of all, the public realm today is more demanding. People actually in most spaces want climate control. At the same time, they do want the outdoors. And so we're talking about a new place that's partially climate controlled and partially outdoors. Now, public realm should not be exclusively commercial. Most malls are exclusively commercial. Public realm, by definition, is a mix of culture and institutions and commercial and all of that together. So we know the ingredients. Now, can we, given the ingredients of accessibility, of connectivity, of openness, of daylight, of indoor and outdoor, allow, allow the private sector to build part of that as it, be, as it connects to be part of the public realm? I think the answer is yes, but it needs controls, it needs regulatory provisions. For example, a public space that's not open 24 hours is not public. And if, it's, if, if the owners can restrict people from going in because they don't like how they look, it's, it's not public. So it needs regulatory devices, but I think you can have the private sector build truly. I think that I've achieved that in Singapore, and I hope I achieve it in Chongqing. It's too early to tell. And I know I've achieved it in Manila, where the entire Manila street from the old city to the new city is open to the sky. It's one of the active, most active streets. It has brought together every segment of the population, except last week. This is uh, in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem. And, and it has demonstrated, even though it was privately, owned, uh, privately built, that it's, it's part of the public realm. Okay. Thank you, Thank you everyone. Thank you, Moshe. Thank you. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.